Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join, or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Doug Ford is gearing up to face voters in an election that will happen just over 11 months from now. But the premier's recent actions show that he's not altogether confident how well facing a vote from Ontarians will go for him and the PC party. Over the past couple of weeks, Doug Ford has shuffled his cabinet, which, yeah, okay. And he's also invoked the notwithstanding clause to do an end run around the charter, passing a bill that will, in effect, put hard limits on the criticism that can rain down on him and his party in the year leading up to next June's election. The PCs also doubled the amount that donors can give to political parties each year, up to $3,300, giving the party more runway to court cash from wealthy individuals. This sudden, vain bonfire of political capital prompts the obvious question, just what is it? that Doug Ford is so afraid of. I'm Alison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today. And like Doug Ford, I am gearing up for next year's election, which will be the third I've covered at Queen's Park. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Canada Land, and I'm hoping this will be the last episode that we have to do from our respective homes under blankets, because next month is July and it is not getting any cooler. And this is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. The beginning of June was supposed to kick off a quiet month in Ontario politics. 
COVID cases were dropping, vaccine rates were soaring, and on Thursday, June 3rd, the legislature rose for its three-month summer recess. But then, a mere five days later, Superior Court Justice Ed Morgan ruled that a controversial law the PCs passed earlier this spring, which limits the amount of money stakeholders can spend ahead of the election campaign, unjustifiably violated charter rights, and he shot it down. This presented an urgent problem for the PCs because it basically left the province with no third-party spending limits until May 2nd of next year. That's when the election campaign officially kicks off and is about a month before the vote. The PC party very much did not want a spending free-for-all because that would mean more attack ads against them. And the judge's ruling meant the province would have to pass another piece of legislation in order to bring any back. Instead of restoring the old rules, which the judge strongly hinted would pass constitutional muster, and hell, instead of even appealing, Doug Ford decided to rapidly recall the House to reintroduce his newly unconstitutional law, this time with the notwithstanding clause appended. For those of you who don't remember, that's the deliberate design flaw in Canada's constitution that allows a provincial or federal government to just ignore the rights guaranteed by ten different sections of the Charter, everything from freedom of expression to freedom from torture, uh, through a, a simple majority vote. This was the first time in Ontario history that it's been invoked in a bill that actually got passed into law, and only the second time in the past three decades that it's been brought into force anywhere in the country. The previous occasion was to permit discrimination against Muslims and other religious minorities, but mostly Muslims, in Quebec. So we got an overnight weekend sitting and a bunch of controversy, including fury from the opposition parties and unions and rounds of op-eds from, you know, legal and political types who, you know, go generally just go crazy when the when the word notwithstanding clause comes up. Then, just days after that wrapped up, Premier Ford announced he was shuffling his cabinet, including by ousting five ministers who were reportedly anti-lockdown during the pandemic. So Ford is both drumming up controversy and trying to turn the page on his government's pandemic performance. Although the notwithstanding clause and the cabinet shuffle may seem kind of different, in that one is unprecedented and the other is annual-ish, they're both, of course, about getting Ford in the best possible position for next year's election. It's interesting to me how the public reaction to the PC's use of the notwithstanding clause this month compared to their threat to use it back in 2018 to, at the time, reduce the size of Toronto City Council just weeks before an election. Then there were huge late-night protests at the legislature with people banging on the building. This time the outcry seemed limited to the unions directly affected by the bill or the opposition parties and, uh, you know, of course, the political nerds on Twitter. I suppose we can garner from that that the people love the former size of Toronto City Council more than they love attack ad commercials run by teachers unions, which is, you know, the exact kind of thing the PCs are limiting with this bill. Arbitrarily redrawing the boundaries of a municipal election already in progress was, was certainly a more concrete and unheard of abuse of power than the glorious abstraction of fiddling with third party spending limits. But as we discussed at length in our April episode, the PC's Protecting Ontario Elections Act is pretty much about rigging the next election in their favor. And by rigging, I don't mean like locking in an outcome, but rather by, you know, creating systematic advantages for one party and systematic disadvantages for the others. I think this is a good time to proffer the best explanation I have heard for the bill. Uh, this is from TVO's John Michael McGrath on a recent On Poly podcast. 
Under the old rules, third parties could spend $600,000 on advertising in the six months leading up to the election, or $100,000 per month. Under the new rules, the same amount of money has to be spread out over a full year, so they can spend a max of $50,000 a month. It's really the gist of it. If it hadn't passed or if the PCs hadn't ever changed the rules uh, in the first place, then it would have been an advertising free-for-all from now through November, which is when the caps would have come into place before. And that would have been bad for Ford and obviously something they foresaw as early as February when they tabled this bill uh, because his opponents are ready and waiting to nail him and his government on how they handled the pandemic. I mean, that's the broadest overview of it. The court struck down the 12-month window because, well, in Canada, the rights in the charter aren't absolute and laws are fringe on them all the time. Like think of how, say, you know, any number of COVID restrictions technically impede on freedom of assembly. There's a balancing act that has to take place and a number of factors that have to be weighed. Does a law have a pressing and substantial objective? Is it rationally connected to that objective? Is the infringement proportional to the outcome? And is the infringement on rights no more than is absolutely needed in order to achieve that stated goal? It was the last one where the PC's Elections Finance Act, or EFA, failed. Where, as Justice Morgan wrote, the rubber of Bill 254 hits the slippery road of justification causing the EFA vehicle to skid off course. So even if we limit ourselves to the question of constitutional principle here, governments probably shouldn't be able to run roughshod over rights any more than they need to. Or at least, or at least Jesus, appeal! I mean, the, the, the government didn't lose this one that badly. And given that the Ontario Court of Appeal tends to be more conservative than the Superior Court, they would have had an okay chance of getting the ruling reversed. But no, they had to jump right to the notwithstanding clause because upending the normal rule of law was basically more convenient for their ends. I'm not here to defend the PC's use of the notwithstanding clause. I think there's a good slippery slope argument to be made that, you know, the more provinces, um, the more they invoke the thing, the more normalized it becomes. And the Ford government has shown it's not afraid to override other rules or procedures when it benefits them or, or their donors. I'm thinking particularly about ministerial zoning orders, which we talked about on a previous episode. Those allow the government to clear basically any project for development, irrespective of local planning procedures or the Environmental Bill of Rights. And MZOs were considered weird to use before, but the PCs have been using them like crazy and have made them even more powerful. So hypothetically, that could happen with the notwithstanding clause, too, especially if Ford is reelected with another majority. I think it's weird they're called MZOs, not MZOs. I've heard members of the government like switch between them within one speech in question period between those two, those two pronunciations. Um, but no, I want to say two things about the PC's move the other week. Well, first... Their timing was impeccable. Like, if you want to do something that overrides the Constitution, you should definitely do it the same weekend you reopen patios. And two, they picked an issue people truly don't care about. Most people have no freaking clue what Ontario's pre-writ election campaign rules are, and I expect... Most Ontarians hate the type of ads run by teachers' unions and would be much more pleased to watch ads for DoorDash and pickup trucks during Blue Jay games all summer rather than ones about Doug Ford killing people. But if you explain it as Doug Ford rigging an election, I think they would and do care. 
The other thing I think is pretty fascinating about how the third party advertising debate is playing out in Ontario is how different it is than in the United States. There, it is left-wing groups that rail against super PACs and big money in politics. And here we have the leader of the New Democrats calling it a freedom of speech issue. We have to have a law around election participation by third parties that meets the requirements of, of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, freedom of expression, uh, you know, freedom of thought. Uh, th- those things need to be protected. I wonder if six or seven pro-PC third-party groups had popped out of the woodwork over the past few years that this whole conversation would look so different. And, you know, believe it or not, two groups that are friendly with the PCs, Ontario Proud and the Ontario Real Estate Association, uh, the latter's CEO is Tim Hudak, the party's former leader, now say they're not sure if they're going to even register as third parties and might stay out of the election altogether. I briefly interviewed Ontario Proud founder Jeff Ballingall over the weekend about this, and he said his team is still deliberating on whether or not they'll get involved or they might just stick to the federal election, which is probably coming soon. Now, I mentioned earlier that there are 10 sections of the Charter whose rights guarantees can be just waved away through a simple majority vote of a legislature. And there's some pretty fundamental stuff in those 10 sections, like freedom of expression, which was the right that Ford's law was found to have unjustifiably infringed. But one of the sections of the Charter that can't be sidestepped through the notwithstanding clause is the one guaranteeing every citizen the right to vote and run in provincial and federal elections. And now the Working Families Coalition has indicated that it plans to challenge Ford's law as a violation of that, contending the law undermines the right to be an informed voter. There's some judicial basis for that, but it's much more of an uphill battle than the free expression argument was. Still, it's not inconceivable that this could all be thrown up in the air yet again before Election Day rolls around. A few things I'm going to be watching for as the election progresses and in its aftermath is how strident Elections Ontario is in enforcing some of these new rules. There's a new rule that you can't have two groups coordinating on a messaging campaign since, you know, that would make the new spending limits pretty pointless. So I expect that the teachers and other unions are looking for loopholes and that we might see some new groups popping up. Will Elections Ontario start issuing fines if it seems like two groups are producing similar messaging? Or if they're sharing the same vendors, which is also against the rules but could be kind of tough to prove. For example, there's an Ontario Autism Coalition that represents the parents of children with autism. Could a new group called the Autism Support Association, for example, spring up and also start running ads? Will they be immediately audited if they do that? Or are we just going to see a lot less voices talking about the election in general? Are big groups not going to risk penalties and small groups that would usually try to push issues, even simple ones like save the turtles or fix our bridge, just going to sit back and shut up? The law seems designed to discourage all kinds of advocacy groups from engaging in a wide range of communications activities over a full year, lest they misstep and incur the kinds of massive penalties that would be devastating for most nonprofits. If anything, the biggest groups are the only ones who are actually in a position to navigate the system that's been set up. Not counting the U.S. Supreme Court and whichever Koch brother is the one who's still alive, pretty much everyone agrees that there needs to be regulations on third-party intervention in electoral politics. But it really, really looks to me like the PCs have specifically exploited that sentiment 
in order to enact a gag law on all the pesky advocacy groups that make their lives so annoying. And not just during elections. You know, we would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those meddling citizen groups. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So when it actually comes to who has the power to spend money making Doug Ford look bad, it turns out he should actually be the most scared of the NDP. The official opposition's campaign director, Michael Balagas, spoke to media last week to boast that the New Democrats have over $6 million in the bank, which is more than any of the other parties, including the PCs. Wait, what? <laughs> and they plan to spend around $1 million in ads over the next month or so. So have they just managed to raise these funds by virtue of being the official opposition to a generally unpopular government? Well, if you asked the NDP's provincial Director Lucy Watson, she'd say that these numbers show her party's powerful grassroots movement is working. The NDP also collect funds through constituency associations as well as through the party, uh, which is a different method than the other parties do, which in practice means that you don't actually get a full picture of their fundraising until Elections Ontario releases its audited financial statements, uh, which they recently did. It's not that the fundraising numbers were actually that different than had been previously reported on. The PCs and the NDP brought in fairly similar amounts last year uh, and, and, and similar-ish amounts from the per-vote subsidy. The PCs clearly got more because they have more MPPs. But the PCs actually spent $6.4 million in 2020 on the expense line of their of their finances, while the NDP spent $3.8 million. So the PCs, they just spent way more of their money that they that they got. Oh. Yeah. There's, you know, big listing of, a, of what the expenses went to. Nothing seemed particularly weird to me when I went through it, but that's why they have less of it. Uh, <laughs> and they're also the only party currently in debt. They have a 2.9 million line of credit that is, you know, in their bank account kind of topping it up. So they have about around $5 million in the bank. So, so less than the less than the NDP. Now, for a podcast called Wag the Dog, you would generally expect us to be wagging the dog. But we really don't talk much about the opposition parties on the show. Watching the opposition parties right now is kind of the best way to tell that an election campaign is on the way. The NDP launched two ads last week, one that features Andrea Horvath in a kitchen talking about how much she cares about the people of Ontario. Imagine instead a premier that chooses you who protects workers, who stands up for local businesses, not big box stores, who instead of cutting, invests in health. And a second one attacking liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, which is much funnier and better. You might not remember his name, but she'll never forget his record as Kathleen Wynne's right-hand man, making big cuts and bad choices. Stephen Del Duca. 
back for power, not for you. You can't see that ad, but it features a good 30 seconds of Del Duca looking into the camera, blinking blankly like taking part in a Marina Abramovich installation with one of the more inscrutable Muppets. Of course, the fact that the NDP sees fit to go after the Liberals from the get-go, or before the get-go, is a sign of how much they see them as a threat. In the current 338 Canada polling averages, they're tied. Though, for what it's worth, I feel like any polls right now have to be read as though the Liberals were enjoying the advantages that come with being a leaderless abstraction. Stephen Del Duca, for example, doesn't even have a seat at Queen's Park. He hasn't since he lost his in 2018. That is generally a bad thing for an opposition leader, but like many things, it was made worse by the pandemic when the legislature barred any outside groups from holding news conferences in the media studio. Since Del Duca doesn't have MPP privileges, he more or less couldn't hold news conferences at Queen's Park. So it was former interim liberal leader John Frazier that had to do that for the party, uh, who would, you know, had to show up to scrums every day and articulate uh, the party's response to stuff, whereas Del Duca has been sitting at home and, and running his party on Zoom. So thanks to that and, you know, some other factors as well, when pollsters ask people or Ontarians if they know who Stephen Del Duca is, the response is an overwhelming no. So Ford will be running against someone who's going to their fourth election, having not won the previous three, as well as a complete unknown. Right. The conventional wisdom among Queen's Park watchers is that Horvath has proven she can't win, and if she was ever going to, it would have been the last time around, and that she probably should have stepped aside years ago to let someone else take the NDP's reins. That, at one point, could have been Jagmeet Singh. He was her deputy leader for some time, but he was obviously too ambitious to wait around for the chance, and now he's the national NDP leader. But with him gone, there isn't really a ton of talent on the opposition bench that I could see taking on Ford. And if it comes to recruiting a, a party leader, as we saw with the Ontario Liberal leadership race in that strange debate, there doesn't seem to be a lot of outside talent gaming to lead Ontario's opposition parties. I mean, there's usually someone with the last name Lewis kicking around. Or you could always do a drop down where someone with some federal profile stoops to conquer a provincial party like... Matthew Green or Charlie Angus for the NDP, or any number of the federal liberal backbenchers who have non-zero name recognition? As we sit here in June 2021, the NDP and the liberals have started putting forward a few policy planks. The New Democrats are promising to end for-profit long-term care, which is pretty bold and, you know, goes along with previous things they've campaigned on in earlier elections and obviously made, you know, a lot more important uh, following the pandemic. And they have a green new democratic deal in the form of a pretty hefty white paper that lays out various climate actions and energy changes. Whereas the liberals are betting on $10 per day universal childcare. And they want to spend billions of dollars to bring down class sizes to a maximum of 20 students. There's an inkling that they're both gunning for the younger vote as well as the female vote, since polls show Ford has less appeal with women voters. Which, fair, he did say that Horvath sounded like nails on a chalkboard and refused to apologize. Why, why don't you come and, and, and join us to support the people of Ontario for once, rather than just sit there and criticize and criticize... You know, it's, it's, like, it's like listening to nails on a chalkboard listening to you. 
For the PC's part, they've tasked government house leader Paul Calandra and new infrastructure minister Kinga Surma and Rod Phillips, who's been newly installed as long-term care minister, to write a cost of platform for them in the election. Now, it's only noteworthy that they're having a cost of platform in an election campaign because it's a minimum bar they didn't even bother trying to clear last time as they bounded toward an easy victory. Uh, that said, Ford himself still seems pretty much intent on running on the same thing that worked for him last time, crooked Hillary, or liber liberal corruption. Next June, you're going to decide. Do you want the, the province to move forward, and we'll keep uh, governing, or do you want it to go back the way it was for 15 years that destroyed our province? I can tell you, we want to move forward. It will be interesting to see whether the PCs do put out a platform that has some sort of vision. Because the one thing I would say about their government for the past three years or the past two where they weren't dealing with a global pandemic is that they have never really seemed to have much of one other than cutting red tape for businesses and, you know, vaguely trying to make the public service run more cheaply. What have they really done? What do they want to do? How do they intend to get rid of their massive deficit? Like, what are people who might vote for them really voting for. So what is it that Doug Ford's afraid of? Maybe having to account for the last three years and maybe the specter of having to do a lot more of this. I know we got it wrong. I know we made a mistake. And for that, I'm sorry. And I sincerely apologize. It's easy to forget that last time around, the PCs probably would have won with anyone as leader, maybe even Patrick Brown. They were distinguished far more by what they weren't, the liberals, than by what they were. Unchecked development and anti-democratic fuckery wouldn't have been too much of a rallying cry, and this time they could add 9,000 deaths and expanded police powers. Unchecked development, anti-democratic fuckery, 9,000 deaths and expanded police powers. For the people. Who wouldn't want to run on that? There is one very interesting piece of polling that came out the other week. It was a survey conducted by Maru Group for TVO's On Poly podcast, and it asked respondents if they could turn back the clock and choose any political party to be in charge during the pandemic, who would they pick? And believe it or not, 42% said the Ontario PCs. That's way higher than the 25-ish percent that picked the Liberals or the NDP. So assuming the pandemic is a lot lighter of a weight on people's minds in 11 months and that the economy is improving and that we're all just generally less interested in being furious with the government, it's not hard to imagine Doug Ford skating ahead with another majority. And now it's time for Foreseeable Disaster of the Month. My foreseeable disaster is that theatre companies in Ontario will continue to get screwed over as the province fails to offer guidelines as to what capacity limits might be for even outdoor events this summer, thereby keeping them from being able to put tickets on sale. There is a musical about the 2003 blackout that is supposed to open in High Park a month from now, and I am anxious to give Canadian stage my money for the privilege of sweating through my mask to see it. Well, for my part, I tried for three days to think of a foreseeable disaster for this month, but I just can't foresee any disasters right now. So I'm making a new segment, a sliver of hope on the horizon. Boo. 
The province is in excellent shape when it comes to COVID cases. Our vaccine rate is through the roof. I just got my second shot last Friday. The city of Toronto reopened its public pools. I'm taking vacation time for the first time all year this week. I am just too happy to foresee disaster. And my prediction is that Ontario is going to have an excellent summer. God, I feel like you're cursing yourself when I will cut to you in your in, in your home studio and the, the roof will collapse or something. Honey, the rain did make my ceiling collapse a little bit last night. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> have an excellent summer. And that was Wag the Doug, a show about staring blankly and blinking slowly as your enemies insult you. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on the beach. Just kidding. On Twitter at Queen's Park Today. Our producer is Demilola Oname. Our executive producer, whose title is so fancy, is Kevin Sexton. And our theme music is by Nathan Burley. And I don't know, maybe this time next year we'll have him do a remix of whatever the, the PC's theme is next year. But they'll probably just go with the same thing. It worked. Our podcast is listener supported. If you like what we do, support us. Go to wagthedug.com or click on the link in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.